This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Direction to record. Press record. Um, you all can also see this on the things in the front hall, the lists look like this in the front hall, but next week's lecture is a guest speaker named Jeff Banks, and he will be talking about Seeking the Shalom of the University Beyond Culture War to Culture Care. That's his title. Uh, Beyond that, I can't tell you anything, so you better come back. Um, Okay, let's get started. Uh, Tonight... Um, my lecture is called How to Read a Story, a Guide for Practical People. Um, it could have it could have had some other titles. It could have been How to Read Literature and Enjoy It, or Getting Past Some Barriers to the Pleasures of Literary Experience. Um, but we'll, we'll stick with this for now. Um, so, I don't know, some of you have been here for quite a few weeks now, and... Um, you probably found that life at Libri has, has its share of surprises. Um, thankfully, we haven't had any surprises like water streaming through the ceiling this term yet. But, um, but if you if you are a Libri student, you may you may um, be surprised if, along with readings in theology and sociology and psychology and all the other ologies that your tutor might assign you. Uh, he or she may also recommend a novel or a work of fiction for you to read. Um, you may have been surprised to find out how much we read aloud here, either at Wednesday morning breakfast or at high teas, often children's literature. Um, you may be surprised and puzzled or surprised and delighted to find some of the ways workers or other students talk about things that they've read. They might say things like, my first literary crush was Johnny Tremaine. Or, when I finished Harry Potter, I just wept. Or, I had to stop reading for two days because the main guy ran into a burning building and it wasn't clear he lived or died and I was afraid he died. Now, those are all things you could hear me say. (laughs) Um, So this this lecture springs out of real conversations I've had, some some of those conversations with you, some of you in the room, um, and it also springs out of one of the great pleasures and delights of my life um, and my sadness that there are people in the world who find that pleasure inaccessible or unrealistic or unbelievable or pointless in some way. Um, I also have vested interest in this topic as a writer of fiction. <laughs> um, and it also springs from a deeply held belief that the pleasures of reading stories are really good. There's actually something deeply good about that experience. And a lot of the things I'll say tonight and a lot of um, things we'll probably discuss later um, could, could refer to like all kinds of reading, but we're going to focus specifically on 
fiction, or we could use the word story or narrative, or even imaginative literature or literary art. Um, that's kind of where we're going to focus today. The things that aren't nonfiction, the things that aren't factual reading. So I'll give you a brief outline of where we're heading, and then we'll we'll just dive into it. Um, I'm going to talk about who these practical people are. Um, and then I'm going to move into sort of three tips or maybe postures or attitudes uh, for how to read a story, how to approach a story. And hopefully those hows will will inform some of the whys uh, that, that can trouble practical people when it comes to reading fiction. Um, and throughout, I'm going to also read some passages from literature to you because there's nothing I can say that will replace actual engagement with a real story. Um, and, and hopefully the stories will open up this topic maybe in some different or fresh ways um, that kind of the philosophizing that I'm going to do won't. Um, so to begin with, I want to read you a passage um, from Charles Dickens, of course, David Copperfield. And this is, this is a passage that is very often and fittingly, I think, quoted by people who are reading and are writing rather and talking about reading. So um, at this point in the story of his life, um, the narrator, who is David Copperfield, he's a young boy, and his widowed mother has remarried a tyrannical older man named Mr. Murdstone, and his he's invited his equally evil sister to come and live with them. And it, he's been kind of describing like how they've been educated, how they've been how they've been homeschooling him essentially, uh, and it's not it's not going great. It seems to me. Oops, I'm sorry. Wrong place. I could have done very well if I had been without the Murdstones, but the influence of the Murdstones upon me was like the fascination of two snakes on a wretched little bird. Even when I did get through the morning with tolerable credit, there was not much gained but dinner, for Miss Murdstone could never endure to see me untasked, and if I rashly made any show of being unemployed, called her brother's attention to me by saying, My dear, there's nothing like hard work. Give your boy an exercise which caused me to be clapped down to some new labor there and then. As to any recreation with other children of my age, I had very little of that, for the gloomy theology of the Murdstones made all children out to be a swarm of little vipers, though there was a child once set in the midst of the disciples, and they held that they contaminated one another. The natural result of this treatment continued, I suppose, for some six months or more, was to make me sullen, dull, and dogged. I was not made the less so by my sense of being daily more and more shut out and alienated from my mother. I believe I should have been almost stupefied but for one circumstance. It was this. My father had left a small collection of books in a little room upstairs to which I had access, for it adjoined my own, and which nobody else in our house ever troubled. From that blessed little room, Roderick Random, Peregrine Pickle, Humphrey Clinker, Tom Jones, the Vicar of Wakefield, Don Quixote, Gil Blas, and Robinson Crusoe came out a glorious host to keep me company. They kept alive my fancy and my hope of something beyond that place and time. They and the Arabian Nights and the tales of the genie and did me no harm, for whatever harm was in some of them was not there for me. I knew nothing of it. 
It is astonishing to me now how I found time in the midst of my pourings and blunderings over heavier themes to read those books as I did. It is curious to me how I could ever have consoled myself under my small troubles, which were great troubles to me, by impersonating my favorite characters in them, as I did, and by putting Mr. and Miss Murdstone into all the bad ones, which I did too. I have been Tom Jones, a child's Tom Jones, a harmless creature, for a week together. I have sustained my own idea of Roderick Random for a month at a stretch, I verily believe. I had a greedy relish for a few volumes of voyages and travels, I forget what now, that were on those shelves, and for days and days I can remember to have gone about, gone about my region of our house, armed with the centerpiece of an old set of boot trees, the perfect realization of Captain Somebody of the Royal British Navy, in danger of being beset by savages, and resolved to sell his life at a great price. The captain never lost dignity from having his ears boxed with the Latin grammar. I did. But the captain was a captain and a hero, and despite of all the grammars, in despite of all the grammars of all the languages in the world, dead or alive. This was my only and my constant comfort. When I think of it, the picture always rises in my mind of a summer evening, the boys at play in the churchyard, and I sitting on my bed, reading as if for life. Reading as if for life. Some of you know exactly what that means. You yourselves have read as if for life. And notice that that Dickens and I are not talking about reading the Bible as if for life or reading philosophy that addresses the great questions as if for life. We're talking about reading fiction. The books that little David clings to as a shipwrecked man clings to a buoyant plank are adventure stories. And then maybe to some of you, some others of you, that sounds suspicious or maybe just unrelatable. And if that is the case, you are the practical people. (laughs) What is it that makes practical adults uneasy when it comes to reading fiction themselves or hearing language like reading as if for life? A lot of these things uh, that that I'm going to kind of list now are not usually, I think, explicitly stated, but they might be. Um, But they are real barriers between us and the the pleasures of reading fiction. So first, um, I have some things that I've either heard people directly say or that I've kind of pulled out, teased out of things that I've heard them say when they talk about reading. And um, these aren't the only things that, that practical people kind of have in mind when they're concerned about reading fiction, but these are some of the major assumptions. First, reading fiction is primarily useful for alleviating boredom or passing the time. Stories are primarily entertainment. Also, I can get all the information I need much faster by reading nonfiction books or reading summaries or articles online or watching the movie version of the story. And I should read literature to improve myself, to be an educated person. So let's think for a minute about what values underlie these statements. And that's where the rub is. The values that undergird these statements. We've got the value of industry or hard work. 
especially over leisure or entertainment. It's more important. We've got the value of efficiency. I can do it faster. The value of utility or usefulness. And the value of self-improvement. These are very pragmatic values. They're super practical values. And they're very American values. Hooray! And, yet, though these values do each have an appropriate place in our lives, on the whole, actually, these statements are deeply flawed. They might be partially true, but they fundamentally misunderstand what is happening when a person reads a good story well. Another way to talk about this is in terms of guilt and um, where, where our values get rubbed Guilt often surfaces and easily. And sadly, a lot of this guilt is inadvertently cultivated by high school and college English teachers. Here are the kinds of things that adults who are nervous around stories say. I kind of want to read literature, but I'm probably going to do it wrong. I know literature is good for me, like broccoli, and I should read it but I just don't like it. And then a third kind of guilt, but a sort of a different kind, I enjoy reading literature so much it's probably bad. And that's where we get people who talk about reading as their guilty pleasure. So because all of these kind of guilts and misconceptions are connected so strongly to these, these really big cultural values, um, there's a lot of unease, and there are questions that uneasy readers have. And I hope that my guide that will come later will address these questions. Here's what uneasy readers are asking. I don't get it. What is the use of reading fictional literature? What is the point? I know I should read literature. How do I do it right? I used to love reading stories when I was a child, but now I'm grown up. How do I get that pleasure back? Is it okay that I enjoy reading stories this much? So hopefully you've you've located yourself somewhere in or between these questions, guilts, misconceptions. Um, If you haven't, you've probably located someone you know and could name. Um, so, So now we're ready to turn our attention to sort of What I want to offer you is three starting points or postures um, for how to read a story. So here they are just to start with. Number one, revalue. Number two, attend. And number three, learn to fall. So first, revalue. I'm going to read a little bit from another Charles Dickens story to you from A Christmas Carol. Uh, It should be pretty familiar. Ebenezer Scrooge is a tight-fisted landlord and moneylender who, in the passage I'm about to read, is is being shown a scene from his past, from when he was a younger man, by the ghost of Christmas past. Scrooge saw himself. He was a man in the prime of life. His face had not the harsh and rigid lines of later years, but it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. 
There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye which showed the passion that had taken root and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. He was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl in mourning dress in whose eyes there were tears which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little, she said softly, to you very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you, he rejoined. A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world, he said. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much, she answered gently. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion, gain, engrosses you. Have I not? What then? He retorted. Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I am not changed towards you. She shook her head. Am I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until, in good season, we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy, he said. Your own feelings tell you that you were not what you are. I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and how keenly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words, no, never. In what then? In a changed nature, in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life, another hope as its great end. In everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, said the girl, looking mildly but with steadiness upon him, tell me, would you seek me out now and try to win me? No. He seemed to yield to the, suggest- to the justice of this supposition in spite of himself. But he said, with a struggle, <clears throat> you, you think not. I would gladly think otherwise if I could, she answered. Heaven knows, when I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong and irresistible it must be. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, even can even I believe that you would choose a dowerless girl, you who, in your very confidence with her, weigh nothing, weigh everything by gain, or choosing her if for a moment you were false enough to your one guiding principle to do so? Do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do, and I release you with a full heart for the love of him you once were. He was about to speak, but with her head turned from him, she resumed. I forgot I have a picture of this. <clears throat> you may. The memory of what is past half makes me hope you will have pain in this. A very, very brief time, and you will dismiss the recollection of it gladly as an unprofitable dream from which it happened well that you awoke. May you be happy in the life you have chosen. She left him, and they parted. If you heard my lecture last term, um, where I talked a lot more about this book, you'll remember that there are a lot of things that Scrooge 
needs to learn from the ghosts that visit him. And this this passage, which is the, probably the saddest breakup scene, in, in at least in Dickens, if not in literature, um, shows us one of them. Scrooge is myopically focused on material gain. This golden idol, as Belle, his fiancée, calls it, has squeezed every other love and vision out of his life. Even the love he once had for her and the vision he had of the life they were going to build together. Um, we see evidence of this in the beginning of the story when, when Scrooge says to his nephew Fred about Christmas, much good it may do you, much good it has ever done you. And Fred replies, there are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited, I dare say. So for Scrooge, good and profit or material gain are the same thing. There are no other goods in his shrunken world. Um, Bell calls his obsession with the gain his one guiding principle, a principle that will cause him to lose the love and comfort and commitment of a good woman forever. So clearly, Scrooge needs a values overhaul. And maybe we do too. Our culture highly values usefulness, efficiency, self-improvement, hard work. These are all values we can bring to our reading of fiction. And they are in many ways good values, but they're not the only goods. And they actually might not be sufficient goods on which to build a good life. We're going to need to overhaul our values if we're going to enjoy literature. We need to revalue We must learn to see stories as ends, not means. Alan Jacobs, in this excellent book that's called The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction, on which I'm relying quite heavily tonight, he quotes this writer, Randall Jarrett, who says, The work of art, Rilke said, says to us always, you must change your life. It demands of us that we too see things as ends, not means, that we too know them and love them for their own sake. This change is beyond us, perhaps, during the active, greedy, and powerful hours of our lives, but during the contemplative and sympathetic hours of our reading, our listening, our looking, it is surely within our power if we choose to make it so. The work of art says to us always, you must change your life. And this doesn't mean you must glean a moral from the work of art and apply it to your life. It means you must change what you value and even perhaps change who you are in order to take in the work. Reading a story as a thing in itself, a thing worth doing for itself, is is similar to looking at a painting or listening to a piece of music. Um, Why are you going to an art museum? Why are you going to the symphony? These are, these are not the operative questions. You go to an art museum to look at art. You go to the symphony to listen to the music, to experience and enjoy those things. You go for them themselves. So similarly, why are you reading this story is not really the appropriate question to be asking. You must change your life. We must downgrade efficiency and usefulness from being our top values. We must believe that taking the time for reading stories, cultivating those, what um, Jarrett called the contemplative and sympathetic hours, that that's allowable, that that's admirable, that it's valuable, and not because of something we necessarily will gain 
at the end of the experience, before the experience itself. And if we don't believe that, then we're probably not going to enjoy what we read or enjoy reading stories very much. And and we likely actually won't read stories at all. There will always be something more important, more urgent, more useful to be doing. Alan Jacobs writes about speed reading. I believe that most people read quickly because they want not to read, but to have read. (laughs) Because I think they conceive of reading simply as a means of uploading information to their brains. And I think we can all relate to this at some level, to the desire not to read, but to have read. Uh, To check things off some arbitrary internet list of 101 books you must read before you die, or just to fit in with people that we think are cool, who we think have good taste, and maybe read more than we do. You know, boom, Hamlet, been there, done that, got it, check. But the best readers don't read that way. C.S. Lewis, who some people believe uh, was the most well-read man in the world at the time of his death, was a huge advocate of rereading. And rereading implies a different value than checking books off a list does. Rereading implies that there is something in the book itself, something beyond the plot, beyond knowing what happens at the end, that is really valuable. So if you can't sit down with a book because there is something that you perceive to be more important for you to do, I invite you to evaluate at the deepest level why you think that thing is important, that other thing. Yes, there are more important things to do than reading stories. But the urgent and the loud are not necessarily the important. Revalue. What I've said so far relates to the, to the first two misconceptions that I put up here um, at the beginning. The misconceptions that reading is primarily to pass the time, and therefore if there's something more important or useful that I should be doing, I should do that. And I can get all the information I need faster. But revaluing also comes into play when we think of, of the third misconception, the idea that I should read literature because it's good for me. Alan Jacobs again writes, The American reading public, or a significant chunk of it anyway, can't take its readerly pleasure straight, but has to cut it with a sizable splash of duty. (laughs) To read for entertainment, or the sheer pleasure of the thing, verges on the morally unjustifiable. So note here that that when Jacobs and I talk about pleasure, we we mean pleasure of the best kind. Not a guilty pleasure, but pleasure because something really is good, it really is true, it really is beautiful, or it's all three at once. Um, Pleasure that is satisfying and rich, not, not, you know, I just ate a bowl full of chocolate icing and now I feel gross. Um, Though, I do want to, to give this caveat that for some of you, the best thing you could do would be to read something trashy. That might be that might be what you need to do, and that's okay. <laughs> but even the best kind of pleasure, good and right pleasure, um, Jacobs is pointing out, makes us uneasy. And so we have to moralize and talk about it in terms of should and ought, and this is good for me. Um, I listened to this really interesting podcast called The Literary Life, um, and these two women, Angelina Stanford and Cindy, Cindy Rollins, um, had a couple of episodes discussing this book, by C.S. Lewis called An Experiment in Criticism. And they address this issue of people saying, well, it's good for me. They said, 
When we talk about truth, beauty, and goodness, I think a lot of times we're not saying the book is good. We're saying the book's going to make me good. And that's, of course, not true. Of course it's not true. Doesn't, doesn't reading story, or at least, you know, maybe not every story, but like classic literature, doesn't that make you a better person? Can't I read to improve myself? Doesn't listening to Mozart make babies smarter? <laughs> so, so for centuries, the question of, of what effect books have on behavior, the behavior of their readers, this has been a discussion for centuries. Greek philosophers, school boards in Kentucky, all, everybody talks about this. Um, and, the, and the short answer, the, the real short answer is that there's no one-to-one correlation between reading and behavior. It's, it's really just not that simple. And, and on this podcast, they made this point really beautifully. They said, reading literature isn't good for you like a spoonful of cod liver oil is good for you. It's good for you like Sunday dinner is good for you. It's beautiful, it's delicious, it's nutritious, and it's an entire experience of fellowship. And it's also not something you can rush through. The words efficient and useful don't have any place when you're talking about Sunday dinner. You can't download the information of Sunday dinner to your belly. That sentence doesn't even make sense. Sunday dinner isn't that kind of thing. And, and neither is a, is a work of literary art, a work of fiction. So to read a story, we need to, we need to revalue our time, our definitions of good and of useful and important. We must change our lives. That brings me to my second suggestion, and that is to attend to the thing itself. We've already we've already kind of gotten into this by talking about seeing literature as as an end, not not a means. But there's there's a lot more to think about. But first, I'm going to read a little bit more from The Little Prince. Once when I was six years old, I saw a magnificent picture in a book called True Stories from Nature about the primeval forest. It was a picture of a boa constrictor in the act of swallowing an animal. In the book, it said... Boa constrictors swallow their prey whole without chewing it. After that, they are not able to move, and they sleep through the six months that they need for digestion. I pondered deeply, then, over the adventures of the jungle. And after some work with a colored pencil, I succeeded in making my first drawing, my drawing number one. It looked like this. I showed my masterpiece to the grown-ups and asked them whether the drawing frightened them. But they answered, Frightened? Why should anyone be frightened of a hat? (laughs) My drawing was not a picture of a hat. It was a picture of a boa constrictor digesting an elephant. But since the grown-ups were not able to understand it, I made another drawing. I drew the inside of the boa constrictor so that the grown-ups could see it clearly. They always need to have things explained. My drawing number two looked like this. (laughs) The grown-up's response this time was to advise me to lay aside my drawings of boa constrictors, whether from the inside or the outside, and devote myself instead to geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar. That is why, at the age of six, I gave up what might have been a magnificent career as a painter. I had been disheartened by the failure of my drawing number one and my drawing number two. Grown-ups never understand anything by themselves, and it is tiresome for children to be always and forever explaining things to them. 
So then, I chose another profession and learned to pilot airplanes. I have flown a little over all parts of the world, and it is true that geography has been very useful for me. At a glance, I can distinguish China from Arizona. If one gets lost in the night, such knowledge is valuable. In the course of this life, I have had a great many encounters with a great many people who have been concerned with matters of consequence. I have lived a great deal among grown-ups. I have seen them intimately, close at hand, and that hasn't much improved my opinion of them. Whenever I met one of them who seemed to me at all clear-sighted, I tried the experiment of showing him my drawing number one, which I have always kept. I would try to find out, so, if this was a person of true understanding. But whoever it was, he or she, would always say, that is a hat. Then I would never talk to that person about boa constrictors or primeval forests or stars. I would bring myself down to his level. I would talk to him about bridge and golf and politics and neckties. And the grown-up would be greatly pleased to have met such a sensible man. This narrator is a casualty of practical people. No one in his life truly looked at his pictures. And therefore, no one was delighted by them, as I am pleased to say you all were when they appeared on the screen. So, good job. But no one paid this budding artist enough attention. So, so the second attitude I have to offer you, attend to the thing itself. Um, we, I already mentioned this book by C.S. Lewis, An Experiment in Criticism, and we tend to know C.S. Lewis best as a theologian or a novelist, but his day job was as a literature professor. Um, and he has some really excellent things to say about, about reading. I mean, this whole book is about reading, but um, reading for self-improvement. He compares it to someone who plays sports only to get fit. He says, To come to a particular game with nothing but a hygienic motive or to a tragedy with nothing but a desire for self-improvement is really not to play the one or to receive the other. Both attitudes fix the ultimate intention on oneself. Both treat as a means something which must, while you play or read it, be accepted for its own sake. Accepted for its own sake. And what is this thing that we are accepting? Lewis draws a really helpful distinction here. Um, He says that literary works are not merely logos, something said, but also poema, something made. They are complex and carefully made objects. So the, the best literary works are not reducible to mere plots, the thing that they're saying, the logos. Um, if you want a few amusing minutes, um, not right now, but Google sometime badly summarized literature or something like that, and you will get things like this. Jane Eyre, maltreated orphan girl, grows up, becomes governess, falls in love with an employer who in no way deserves her. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings, a really short dude walks for several years to drop a ring in some lava. <laughs> <laughs> Hamlet, a man fakes insanity in an unsuccessful attempt to solve his family problems. But is he faking? That's actually the question, right? Um, so these are funny only because we know that they are utterly unlike the actual experience of reading any of these works. Um, and, and similarly, like this is a joke, but even a really well done abridged version of a classic novel or a really well made film adaptation is not going to be a replacement for the novels or stories themselves because it's a different kind of poema. It's a different kind of made thing. 
um, even if they appear to have the same logos, the same thing that they're saying, the medium is different. And, and often, actually, that is just a mere appearance that they're saying the same thing because in some of the best works of literature, the logos and the poema, the way it's made and what it says are so intertwined that you actually can't tease those things apart. So when we set about reading a story, C.S. Lewis says, attention to the objects they are is our first step. And this means attending to the words on the page, attending to the images and the metaphors and the descriptions, but also attending to the sound of the words that are used. As any poet will tell you, it's about sound and sense. And Lewis advocates advocates reading by ear as well. I really, really hope that you were read to as a child. This, this goes an incredibly long way in developing that inner readerly ear, that internal ear that can hear the words as you're reading, even silently. But maybe you don't have that experience. Maybe you don't hear the words when you're reading silently. Maybe you haven't had much practice in listening to read reading uh, stories read aloud. Maybe your ear needs some training. So for you, maybe the audiobook version read by a really good reader is going to be the best way for you to enter in um, to reading for pleasure. And, and if that is the case, that go for that. Do it. Um, there's so many amazing audio versions of books out available. Um, and then from there, attend to where the words on the page, the words in your headphones go. Don't ask, or at least don't ask at first, what should I be getting out of this? Or what is the moral of this story? Or what does this teach me about human nature? Or things like that. Follow the story. C.S. Lewis says, look, listen, receive, get yourself out of the way. Follow the details. Notice the particulars. Ask, what kind of attention, what kind of response does this story invite? And the story will tell you how it wants to be read. The words on the page will show you what kind of attention the work demands. Some stories demand really hard work. Sustained periods of attention, maybe a pencil in your hand, maybe a glossary or a dictionary. You need those things before they will yield up their pleasures, which which are nonetheless real and and significant um, for being hard won. But other stories just invite you to just plunge in for a a great ride. Um, A good reader, C.S. Lewis says, will read in the same spirit the author writ. He will never commit the error of trying to munch whipped cream as if it were Mm -hmm. venison. And this this attention to the thing itself will reward us, I think, with some of our anxieties about the use or the point of reading stories being being allayed. Dorothy Sayers, in her book *The Mind of the Maker*, says the author's chosen way of revelation is through his works. To persist in asking, as so many of us do, what do you mean by this book, is to invite bafflement. The book itself is what the writer means. In other words, as Lewis says, the reason of existence of the story is that we shall weep or shudder or wonder or laugh as we follow it. Um, Martha Nussbaum, in this massive book of essays called Love's Knowledge, in one called Fictions of the Soul, she says, there is at least some knowledge, some important human knowledge, that a novel provides just in virtue of its being a novel. That is to say, a work that leads its reader into laughter and suffering, 
that cannot even in principle be provided in another more intellectual way. She has a lot more interesting and and very in-depth things to say about this, and we can talk more in discussion if you would like. But, But to summarize what all of these authors, Sayers and Lewis and Nussbaum, are all saying, they're saying that there's something about the way the work is made um, that is intrinsic to what it means. It's, it's, it can only be unpacked by diving into the work itself and following it and attending to what's really there. So I want to read a little bit more from The Little Prince because what, what happens when we really attend, when we get ourselves out of the way or at least get our busyness out of the way and really open up our imaginations and our ears and our eyes to the thing before us? The, what, what, what do we encounter? Okay. So I lived my life alone, without anyone that I could really talk to, until I had an accident with my plane in the desert of Sahara six years ago. Something was broken in my engine, and as I had with me neither a mechanic nor any passengers, I set myself to attempt the difficult repairs all alone. It was a question of life or death for me. I had scarcely enough drinking water to last a week. The first night, then, I went to sleep on the sand a thousand miles from any human habitation. I was more isolated than a shipwrecked sailor on a raft in the middle of the ocean. Thus, you can imagine my amazement at sunrise when I was awakened by an odd little voice. It said, If you please, draw me a sheep. What? Draw me a sheep. I jumped to my feet, completely thunderstruck. I blinked my eyes hard. I looked carefully all around me, and I saw a most extraordinary small person who stood there examining me with great seriousness. Here you may see the best portrait I was later able to make of him, but my drawing is certainly very much less charming than its model. That, however, is not my fault. The grown-ups discouraged me in my, par- in my painter's career when I was six years old, and I never learned to draw anything except boas from the outside and boas from the inside. <laughs> Now I stared at this sudden apparition with my eyes fairly starting out of my head in astonishment. When at last I was able to speak, I said to him, But but what are you doing here? And in answer, he repeated very slowly as if he were speaking of a matter of great consequence, If you please, draw me a sheep. When a mystery is too overpowering, one dare not disobey. Absurd as it might seem to me, a thousand miles from any human habitation and in danger of death, I took out of my pocket a sheet of paper and my fountain pen. But then I remembered how my studies had been concentrated on geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar, and I told the little chap, a little crossly too, that I did not know how to draw. He answered me, that doesn't matter, draw me a sheep. But I had never drawn a sheep, so I drew for him one of the two pictures I had drawn so often. It was that of the boa constrictor from the outside. And I was astounded to hear the little fellow greet it with, No, 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 I do not want an elephant inside a boa constrictor. A boa constrictor is a very dangerous creature, and an elephant is very cumbersome. Where I live, everything is very small. What I need is a sheep. Draw me a sheep. So then I made a drawing. He looked at it carefully, and then he said, No, this ship is al- this sheep is already very sickly. Make me another. So I made another drawing. My friend smiled gently and indulgently. You see yourself, he said, that is not a sheep, that is a ram, it has horns. (laughs) So then I did my drawing over again, but it was rejected too, just like the others. This one is too old, I want a sheep that will live a long time. 
By this time, my patience was exhausted because I was in a hurry to start, drawing, start taking my engine apart. So I tossed off this drawing, and I threw out an explanation with it. That is only his box. The sheep you have asked for is inside. I was very surprised to see a light break over the face of my young judge. That is exactly the way I wanted it. Do you think that this sheep will have to have a great deal of grass? Why? Because where I live, everything is very small. There will surely be enough grass for him, I said. It is a very small sheep that I have given you. He bent his head over the drawing. Not so small that... Look, he has gone to sleep. <laughs> and that is how I made the acquaintance of the little prince. Once we've set aside our utilitarian values, set aside our focus on ourselves and our own aspirations and anxieties, and begun to attend to the thing before us, we begin to make its acquaintance as, a, as the unique kind of thing that it is that this work of imaginative literature is. It's a highly personal thing. It's an encounter with another mind. We come to number three. Learn to fall. We've been dancing around this point. There have been hints of it already. I've said, get yourself out of the way, follow, attend. C.S. Lewis says, the first demand any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Alan Jacobs says, I forgot my obsession with self-advancement. I wanted to lose myself. I wanted to read. Instead of filling in the blanks, I wanted to be a blank and be filled in. And this, this might sound a little scary. It might sound like new agey, like empty your mind kind of stuff. Like, come on, aren't we supposed to take every thought captive? Aren't we supposed to test the spirits? Like, what about that? Don't freak out. Do not be overcome by suspicion, but overcome suspicion with love. Reading and writing is about human connection. And because this is the case, the appropriate language to use for this encounter is the language of love. I, I talked a lot more about this in my previous lecture on Dickens and love of neighbors. So you can check that out later. It's on the podcast still. Um, but for now, think of, think of reading as an encounter with other minds, but not... Um, not in the way that we encounter a philosopher's ideas by reading a treatise that he or she wrote, but in the way we encounter other people in, in real life. Lewis says, No poem will give up its secret to a reader who enters it regarding the poet as a potential deceiver and determined not to be taken in. We must, we must risk being taken in if we are to get anything. We must enter fully at the story's invitation. We must let it take us in. And remember that to be taken in can mean to be deceived, but it can also mean to be sheltered, to be adopted, to be welcomed. Martha Nussbaum, again, in her um, essay called Love's Knowledge, she describes reading a story well as learning to fall. Learning to fall like a person in an acting class might learn to fall gracefully and without hurting herself. Learning to fall like those trust fall exercises in youth group where you just <laughs> fall back without flinching into someone's arms. And also, and Nussbaum really develops this point in a really beautiful way that I can't 
do justice to in summary, but she says it's a lot like learning to fall in love. We don't fall in love by assenting to theories or propositions. Knowledge of love, she writes, is a love story. She writes, and I'll quote at length here. Put this up here because it's a bit longer. We aren't very loving creatures, apparently, when we philosophize. The unexamined life is not worth living. Not, perhaps, the saying of an altogether trusting man. Before a literary work, we are humble, open, active, yet porous. Before a philosophical work, in its working through, we are active, controlling, aiming to leave no flank undefended and no mystery undispelled. It's not just emotion that's lacking. It's also passivity. It's trust, the acceptance of incompleteness. Accept that your position before the work is incomplete. Let yourself fall for the story. Let it take you in. That might sound scary, and that might sound too risky. That might not sound like reading for pleasure. Uh, learning to fall, yikes, okay, we're not talking about like real human relationships that are already complicated enough. Why would I add more? Um, but what if we also think about learning to fall in terms of learning to dive? Or learning to leap, learning to leave our self-consciousness behind, to become absorbed, to, to play. I'm going to read a passage from this novel from 1908. It's called A Room with a View by E.M. Forster. Um, this is a little bit, I'll give a little bit more background because it's not as familiar. In this chapter, Mr. Beebe, who's a clergyman in this country town, he's brought the son of one of the important families named Freddie to meet some people who've just moved to the neighborhood, uh, Mr. Emerson and his son, George. Mr. Beebe previously met the Emersons while on vacation in Italy. And this father and son are kind of known for being kind of socially inept, and um, they're kind of free thinkers into philosophy and stuff, and they just kind of do their own thing. So they're kind of a wild card when it comes to high society. Um, And the initial interactions between these three men, um, between Freddie the son George, and Mr. Beebe are quite awkward. But then Freddie unexpectedly invites George to come with him for a dip in the nearby pond. Do you really want this bathe? Freddie asked him. It's only a pond, don't you know? I dare say you're used to something better. Yes, I've said yes already, said George. Mr. Beebe felt bound to assist his young friend and led the way out of the house and into the pine woods. How glorious it was. For a little time, the voice of old Mr. Emerson pursued them, dispensing good wishes and philosophy. It ceased, and they only heard the fair wind blowing the bracken and the trees. Mr. Beebe, who could be silent but could not bear silence, was compelled to chatter, since the expedition looked like a failure, and neither of his companions would utter a word. He spoke of Florence. George attended gravely, assenting or dissenting with slight but determined gestures that were as inexplicable as the motion of the treetops above their heads. And what a coincidence that you should meet Mr. Feist. Did you realize that you would find all the pension Bertolini down here? I didn't, Miss Lavish told me. When I was a young man, I always meant to write a history of coincidence. No enthusiasm. Though, as a matter of fact, coincidences are much rarer than we suppose. For example, it isn't pure pure coincidence that you are here now when one comes to reflect. To his relief, George began to talk. It is. I have reflected. It is fate. Everything is fate. We are flung together by fate, drawn apart by fate, flung together, drawn apart. The twelve winds blow us. We settle nothing. 
You have not reflected at all, rapped the clergyman. Let me give you a useful tip, Emerson. Attribute nothing to fate. Don't say I didn't do this. Pretend to one you did. Now I'll cross-question you. And they talk for a while about this fate question. Mr. Beebe slid away from such heavy treatment of the subject, but he was infinitely tolerant of the young and had no desire to snub George. <laughs> and, and so, for this and, and for other reasons, my history of coincidence is still to write. Silence. Wishing to round off the episode, he added, uh, We are all so glad that you have come. Silence. Here we are, called Freddy. Oh, good, exclaimed Mr. Beebe, mopping his brow. In there's the pond. I wish it was bigger, Freddy added apologetically. They climbed down a slippery bank of pine needles. There lay the pond, set in its little alp of green. Only a pond, but large enough to contain the human body and pure enough to reflect the sky. On account of the rains, the waters had flooded the surrounding grass, which showed like a beautiful emerald path, tempting the feet directly towards the central pool. It's distinctly successful as ponds go, said Mr. Beebe. No apologies are necessary for the pond. George sat down where the ground was dry and drearily unlaced his boots. Aren't these masses of willow herbs splendid? I love willow herb and seed. What's the name of this aromatic plant? No one knew or seemed to care. Uh, these abrupt changes of vegetation, this little spongiest tract of water plants, and on either side of it all the growths are tough or brittle, heather, bracken, perts, pine. Very charming, very charming. Mr. Baby, aren't you bathing? called Freddy as he stripped himself. Mr. Beebe thought he was not. Water's wonderful, cried Freddy, prancing in. Water's water, murmured George. Wetting his hair first, a sure sign of apathy, he followed Freddy into the divine, as indifferent as if he were a statue and the pond a pail of soap suds. It was necessary to use his muscles. It was necessary to keep clean. Mr. Beebe watched them and watched the seeds of the willow herb dance chorically above his head. Went Freddy, swimming for two strokes in either direction, and then becoming involved in reeds or mud. Is it worth it? asked the other, Michelangelesque on the flooded margin. The bank broke away, and he fell into the pool before he had weighed the question properly. <sighs> I've swallowed a polywog, Mr. Beebe. Water's wonderful. Water's simply ripping, said Freddy. <laughs> Water's not so bad, said George, reappearing from his plunge and sputtering at the sun. Water's wonderful, Mr. Beebe, do. Mr. Beebe, who was hot and who always acquiesced where possible, looked around him. He could detect no parishioners except the pine trees, rising up steeply on all sides and gesturing to each other against the blue. How glorious it was. The world of motor cars and rural deans receded illimitably. Water, sky, evergreens, a wind. These things not even the seasons can touch, and surely they lie beyond the intrusion of man. I may as well wash too. And soon his garments made a third little pile on the sward, and he too as asserted the wonder of the water. It was ordinary water, nor was there very much of it, and as Freddie said, it reminded one of swimming in a salad. <laughs> Three gentlemen rotated in the pool breast high after the fashion of the nymphs in Gotterdammerung. But either because the rains had given a freshness, or because the sun was shining a most glorious heat, or because two of the gentlemen were young in years and the third young in spirit, for some reason or other a change came over them, and they forgot Italy and botany and fate. They began to play. Mr. Beebe and Freddie splashed each other. A little deferentially they splashed George. 
He was quiet. They feared they had offended him. Then all the forces of youth burst out. He smiled, flung himself at them, splashed them, ducked them, kicked them, muddied them, drove them out of the pool. <laughs> Race you round it then, cried Freddy, and they raced in the sunshine. And George took a shortcut and dirtied his shins and so had to bathe a second time. Then Mr. Beebe consented to run, a memorable sight. They ran to get dry, they bathed to get cool, they played at being Indians in the willow herbs and in the bracken, they bathed to get clean. And all the time, three little bundles lay discreetly on the sward, proclaiming, No, we are what matters. Without us shall no enterprise begin. To us shall all flesh turn in the end. <laughs> What were we talking about? <laughs> Forget Italy and botany and fate. Dive into a story. Or, like George, in spite of yourself, fall in. Begin to play. Your clothes will always be waiting on the bank. Alan Jacobs, in the same place where he was quoting Jarrett that I mentioned before, he tells the story of a literary critic who, who said that once a year he read Kim, and he read Kim, it was plain, at whim, not to teach, not to criticize, just for love. He read it as Kipling wrote it, just because he liked to, wanted to, couldn't help himself. He read it not for anything he could get out of it, but for itself. So I say to you, read at whim, read at whim. You're welcome to take the recommendations of people who you think have good taste. You're welcome to look at a list on the internet that's 101 books you should read before you die. But you're also just welcome to put yourself in the way of books and see what one strikes your fancy, whether it is highly recommended or a bestseller or a certified classic or not. Peruse, browse, start reading because it has a cover you like, because it's a size you like, because it feels nice in your hands, because it has pictures, because you think maybe you read it once when you were a child, because you want to, because you don't know what you might find in it. Read at whim, and who knows what you will find. You will find characters and words and worlds that you never knew were possible. You will find pleasures that you didn't know you could have. But that won't come from a buttoned-up academic attitude. It won't come if you don't lay down your arms to receive the story's welcome. Don't take yourself too seriously. That's not the way to make friends. Come with playfulness, fall, dive, leap, whatever one of those metaphors captures your fancy. Release yourself to enjoy. So I've given you three suggestions or postures or attitudes on how to read a story that all overlap quite a great deal. They're, they're not really steps to follow in order. They all inform each other. You have to revalue in order to attend, and you have to attend to revalue. And you have to revalue in order to leap or fall. But if you take the risk of leaping or falling, you may also find yourself discovering new values. But as I, as I finish up here, um, I find myself asking, and I was asking this the entire time I was writing this, um, why do we need to read stories again? Wait, why is this pleasure of literary experience worth seeking? In all the passages that I read to you this evening, I chose them on purpose. I chose characters in, on purpose who are marked by loneliness and isolation. Little David alone in his room while the other boys play outside. Scrooge, who has alienated himself from everyone by his narrow focus. 
the pilot whose imaginative work was really never attended to, who's literally stranded alone in the desert, Mr. Beebe, Freddie, and George, who are isolated from each other by the constraints of social politeness. To a greater or lesser degree, we are all isolated by and in our own experiences. No one else knows exactly what it's like to be you. You don't know exactly what it's like to be someone else. There is quite a profound loneliness in just being an individual person. And C.S. Lewis actually calls it a wound, something that needs healing. This book uh, about the ethics of fiction is significantly called The Company We Keep. And in it, the author Wayne Booth calls stories friendship offerings. He says, all narratives offer with their titles and opening sentences a cry of invitation. Join me, join me, because if you do, you will receive something that no other story can give you. Something that will... But here the offers diverge. They may be offering something pleasurable or useful or something irreducible to simply pleasure or utility, something that Booth calls a chance to live together for a while with a new friend. He goes on to say that the authors who become our lasting friends are those who offer to to teach us by the sheer activity of considering their gifts a life larger than any specific doctrine that we might accept or reject. The sheer activity of considering their gifts, that activity of revaluing, of attending, of falling that I've been describing, it enlarges our lives. And you might think, well, I have a lot of real life friends. Um, I don't think I need fictional friends. Um, but our, actually our real world friends, besides, besides not always being available or, or um, always willing to engage us, they don't act, have the same expanding capacity that literature has. C.S. Lewis answers the question, what is the defense for occupying ourselves with stories in this way? We seek an enlargement of our being. We want to be more than ourselves. We want to see with other eyes, to imagine with other imaginations, to feel with other hearts as well as with our own. We demand windows. The primary impulse of each person is to maintain and aggrandize himself. The secondary impulse is to get out of the self, to correct its provincialism and heal its loneliness. In love, in virtue, in the pursuit of knowledge and in the reception of the arts, we are doing this. Obviously, this process can be described either as an enlargement or as a temporary annihilation of the self. But that is an old paradox. He that loseth his life shall save it. Nussbaum says this by saying we have never lived enough. We all too often are not aware of the story of our own lives uh, because life is just happening and passing by. And reading fiction helps us actually see and feel and imagine more keenly. It helps us get out of ourselves. Like Lewis says, correcting our provincialism and healing our loneliness. So I'm going to end with a final quotation, the way that C.S. Lewis ends his experiment in criticism. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. Literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. There are mass emotions which heal the wound, but they destroy the privilege. In them, our separate selves are pooled and we sink back into sub-individuality. 
But in reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad eyes, but it is still I who see. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself, and I am never more myself than when I do. I'm going to stop there. I've said a lot of things. And, um, yeah, now we can open up for a time of discussion. If you Also, if you need to leave, you're welcome to do that now. Um, yeah, and I'm also, we'll put this up here just for your reference. These are the books that I talked about, not the literature that I read from. We can also talk about those. Questions or comments or reactions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marty? Yeah, I, your, um, your point about losing yourself, mm-hmm. very interesting, and it just made me think of um, my best friend growing up, who I knew we were we were great friends through about sixth grade, and then she had moved away, mm-hmm. and we're we're still in touch. But she she lost herself, and she was living with a guy in New York City. Ended up marrying him, and then she read um, Herman Hesse, Siddhartha, and she lost herself in that book, and um, left her husband, went to Japan, joined a Buddhist monastery, and Siddhartha, most of you know, is the story of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. And, became a, a Zen monk, and she's still there, uh, a Zen monk, mm-hmm. and it's been, you know, it's been 60 years. I just heard from her mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on my birthday, actually. We, we're still, we're still in touch. And um, it just, that just struck me as an example of, of maybe not the, not the best um, fruit coming from, mm-hmm. at least in her case, of having given herself totally to those that novel and, yeah. and it leading her to she told me at the time I was a young Christian and that she believed Jesus really was God but she wasn't ready to doubt with what him now at that mm-hmm. point you know, she'd come back sometime but she's now been um, a Zen monk for you know, many many mm-hmm. years not 60 years, 50 years anyway, I'm not, I'm not 90 yet <laughs> anyway, yeah. I, I just um, that was that is a story not not to um, to question you know not to sort of push back against what you were saying because because that was very very helpful and I, I we're actually we've been listening to a really good audio version of Jane Eyre mm-hmm. which has been just wonderful mm-hmm. having read it years ago and, and uh, you know everything that you said has resonated with our mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just any thoughts on? Yeah, I think. I mean, that's that's why I made that point that like the there's no way to to directly correlate. Like, if you read this book, this will be the result. Like, it's it would be someone could read that and have no reaction whatsoever. Someone could be totally turned off from Buddhism forever. You know, there could be so many different reactions to any given text. Um. So so um, it's obviously important for you to think about what is good for you um and what yeah what might be helpful and wise and um doubtless there were other things in her life that were also pushing her in that direction other decisions she was she was already 
kind of starting to make. Um, one thing, though, that I think is helpful that I didn't say in here. Let me see if I've got. Um, yeah, that that Wayne Booth brings up when he's talking about books in terms of friendship. He says that actually does help us when we're we're not sure if a book might actually be harmful. We can ask sort of this question, and Booth says it this way. He says, do you, my would-be friend, wish me well, or will you be the only one to profit if I join you? Um, and that that's one way that we can avoid things that are purely, they're just trying to make money off of people. Um, they're not really interested in in, in enlarging anyone's world or, or hu- in human connection, really. Um, but I think that that's, that's sort of a, an evaluative question that can um, come in. Obviously, the, the people I'm mostly addressing are people who are afraid to read anything fictional because it might be bad for me. Or I enjoy this so much it can't be good for me. Um, yeah. But it is, it is complicated because we never you never know. And I mean, that's why, that's why books get banned. They are, like, very powerful. But it's also, they're also so powerful because they're unpredictable how they're going to, you know, what effects they're going to have. Yeah, other thoughts or reactions? Responses? Yeah, Andrew. Um, hi. I, um, kind of, I guess it's kind of two questions where I think they might be connected. Um, you talked a little bit about modality, like listening versus reading versus maybe watching. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I feel like you kind of addressed this as I was listening, but just different um, things that go on as we're, say, watching a movie versus reading a book, and the need for attention and focus, and um, cultivating that to have a reading life. I don't know if you could speak more to that about how we can or should be cultivating that. Um, because I, as well as finding time to read, like, mm-hmm. finding time where I'm still enough and focused enough, like, I find I find that's um, even more difficult to do that, you know, um, when you're coming to a book. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would definitely recommend that you read The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. Um, it's... It's actually, it's kind of lovely how he writes it. It just kind of like flows from one section to another. It doesn't really have chapters. Um, And he talks about how, like, especially now in our incredibly loud age where we all have, have, you know, windows in our pockets literally to anywhere in the world at any time. uh, And people can access this all the time. Um, It can be hard to, like, carve out that quiet that's needed to read. Um, but he also does make the point that that's always been the case for people who really are serious about reading. I mean, if you are a working class person in England um, who's trying to teach oneself because you didn't get to go to school or higher education at all, um, you're in a house with a one-room house with a whole bunch of people, um, and there's there's um, there are accounts of people who who really worked hard to, to do that, you know. Um, I mean, even like the story of Abraham Lincoln, you know, reading by the fire. He was in a house with lots of people in a log cabin, you know. There wasn't space. There wasn't, you know, he couldn't put his noise-canceling headphones on. Like, So it's always been a struggle. And so um, it, that's where kind of the revaluing comes in. It's like, what is this time for? Or what is the space for? 
and am I willing to, to do what it takes to get the quiet that I need? Because a film is, what, what films and, and video games and those kinds of visual media do is, is they constantly offer you new things to bring your attention back. And a book's not going to do that. Um, I mean, unless you're reading like a real page turner, but um, it's not going to like keep flashing literal bright light in your face to get you to come back. Um, yeah. Are there any, like, sometimes I think highlighting the, the negative helps contrast with the positive. So you've been saying these are reasons why you should read books. Are there any, like, cases where you would say, like, this is when you should not read a book? Or, you know, the ways in which, like, you're prioritizing something that's important. Like, what are things that you would say, maybe, maybe this is not the direct, correct direction for the question, but what are, are things that are important? Or, like, where, where, where's the ordering that you would put reading in, in, like, a context of, like, a happy... That's going to be different for every person and the roles and responsibilities that you have. And that's where you're going to have to use your own wisdom and, and discernment to figure that out. What is actually important versus what is, is urgent and loud. Um, and I think that's like too often we, li- we live in the tyranny of the urgent. That's what demands our attention always instead of thinking, no, actually what I need to do now is sit down and read this story. Um, or even just, this is what I want to do now. I mean, it could be it could be tempting. Well, it's actually easier for me to turn off my brain and turn on a show than to read War and Peace. That's what I'm trying to read right now. Um, that's a lot easier way to use my 20 minutes, you know, after lunch or whatever. Um, so then I have to prioritize for myself what what is the right thing right now. So I'm not going to answer your question by giving you a rule to follow. It's just, what are ways that, I don't know, it's just, like I said, examples of negatives. I don't know what they be, but... Well, like, I mean, like, if you're sitting in your room and you're like, this is my quiet time to read my story, and then um, your child comes in with that bleeding finger, you shouldn't just be like, no, this is my quiet time to read my story. Like... You know, or your roommate comes in weeping because her cat just died. I don't think you have a cat, but <laughs> yeah. One of the things that's uh, to me a, a pleasure about reading is you get writers who put the words together in a way that just just gives you pleasure. When, mm-hmm. when you read it, you that's fun to read. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lewis does that sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. We were reading, we've just been rereading some George MacDonald novels, and his dialogue, just the, the way the dialogue flows, gives mm-hmm. you pleasure. So, mm-hmm. um, but but sometimes famous books don't actually have that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people who have that gift of writing that way aren't writing about something that's particularly maybe politics. I mean. Well, Somebody I used to enjoy, I, I would read it, and I thought that was fun, was Richard John Newhouse, who was usually writing about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's part of the yeah. Yeah, and that's part of part of what I meant by attending to the thing itself. It's like, what are these words? What words did they choose to use? They could choose so many words to use. I mean, just like this line, 
You might have seen me kind of smirk. Oh, I don't know if I'll be able to find it. Lost my bookmark. Um, Is it worth it? Asked the other Michelangelesque. He just like made up a word. Michelangelesque on the flooded margin. He's like a statue. I mean, and throughout the story, I mean, if, you, if you're attending to this particular story, he talks about people in terms of art. Like, everyone is very aestheticized. Um, it's all about looking at art. It's fascinating. So if you start noticing those little things, it's just, like, so delightful and, and amusing to me. I mean, he compares them to, like, nymphs in Gotterdammerung. What in the world? They're just a three dudes swimming in a pool. Like... Um, the, the author's using particular for images and phrases to like build this theme that he's got happening throughout the throughout the story. Um, and you're not going to get that if you watch the film, because how are they going to communicate that? Well, there might be ways that they that the filmmakers might, but it's not going to be in the same way with the same kind kind of language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michaela. Uh, this is just a comment about being lost in a story, mm-hmm. which. I find myself lost in lots of stories because I like to read and mm-hmm. as a child, but I do think that there's a difference between stories giving you permission and also being lost in a story. Uh-huh. Um, I think, uh, yeah, being lost in a story is not the same thing as giving you permission to behave. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a helpful, like, corrective. Yeah. Like imagining yourself in a position where the character has done something for it mm-hmm. is not the same as giving you permission to do something for it. Yeah. Like you grow in empathy, or like I could see myself doing that. Mm-hmm. And that scares me. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a difference there that stories give you that permission to be lost of like, oh, I could, I could see myself. Doing it, right? As an infidelity or something like that. Yeah. Um, that's quite powerful, and I think mm-hmm. that's the gift of story. Yeah. Of being able to empathize or see yourself doing something that is scary. And, mm-hmm. But you don't have permission to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point, and I think that's what what Lewis is getting at when he talks about um, we demand windows. I think he says it here. Well, maybe it was somewhere else. But he says, we demand windows. It's windows, not mirrors, where we see, like, our evil self doing something, and we're like, well, we better go and do likewise, right? But it's a window into, what would it be like to be this person? Maybe a despicable person. Um, But it's also um, where later he says, you know, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. It's also important to remain yourself. Um, and not just be like, and now I'm going to do these things. You don't have to because the literary people have <laughs> shown you what happens um, as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I know. Marilyn, two questions? <laughs> of course. So, um, I, so, yeah, this has been a really, really good talk. And I like how you're saying how we're just kind of you can just enjoy it for what it is. Mm-hmm. However, 
is it not true that when someone writes a book, there is some worldview coming through? Like, there's some perspective coming through, and um, and so on the one hand, I feel like we're not going like a philosopher, theologian, trying to map out every argument and necessarily mm-hmm. what it's leading toward inevitably, but I guess what's a kind of uh, ethic for looking at a book without... I don't know, not just like turning into a non-fiction, but also being aware of that. Mm-hmm. Like being aware that it can it can be very persuasive, mm-hmm. like holistically. Like um, a lot of, you know, ideologies were started with just a book. And mm-hmm. whether it was a novel or or um, autobiography or whatever it was. So mm-hmm. I'll speak to that more as detecting that, but not necessarily being repulsed by the book just because it's not a perspective that you value, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where the the ethic of, of thinking of of it as a as a as an offer of friendship and then and then deciding like do do I want to be best friends with this person or is this someone where I hear them out and then it's like great, thanks for sharing, bye. Um, <laughs> is it that kind of a relationship? <laughs> or is it like Actually, I want you to live in my house. This is what I want to reread. Um, this is where, oh man, I don't think I have this quote, but someone someone talked about um, the books you reread is like a clearing in a forest where you build your cabin. Um, that's like where you're building how you understand the world with those with those books um, versus ones where you are that are you know chance encounters someone you talk to at the doctor's office, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that that Thinking how we do that with with physical people in in the real world um, can help us think about how we do that because we encounter people we disagree with all the time. How do we engage with them? Um, what is the way to to ethically engage with them? Alan Jacobs has another book that's one of my favorite books in the world called um, A Theology of Reading, um, and the subtitle is A Hermeneutics of Love. And he talks about reading in terms of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And I talked a lot of, about this in, in my lecture uh, last term. Um, but he gives a lot of helpful, you know, what do you do? What do you do when the neighbor is an enemy? Well, Jesus still commands us to love our enemies, right? So, so, but what does that look like? That doesn't mean that you have to like let your enemy live in your house. Um, but what is it? What is that? How do we engage then with a book that's hostile, maybe and antagonistic towards us, wants to hurt us? Yeah. There's also an aspect of it of what Lewis is saying. It's, I don't forget whether it's, whether it's this: you have to remain, remain yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it just know, knowing yourself, and, yeah. and knowing, um, you know, if, if I, someone is mature in their faith and they are. He said, wanting to hear somebody out, <laughs> read, mm-hmm. read, read something that's from a completely different perspective, and, and uh, but you know who you are. You know, you're mm-hmm. standing in a place, a position from which to interpret something. And to, mm-hmm. to, to, you know, to me, it's not to sort of lose yourself and dive in, which is a lot of imagery that you're using, which is wonderful. It's not the same thing as um, put everything on the table in terms of who I am. Right. And surrender as in, I'm a blank slate. 
Yeah. You know, whatever I'm reading, just fill me and teach me whatever you have. That you're, you're always, there's always a self there in mm-hmm. the reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if it's an open self, it's just, mm-hmm. you're, not, you're not a blank. Ready to just take on and swallow and believe and adopt whatever you're reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess there's something, I mean, I guess another way of putting this is something I often think about. Um, I'd like to hear what you think about it. Because <laughs> I, 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 I want to believe this is true, and then I also feel like I need a lot of qualification, but it's, it's one of Claire O'Connor's uh, things that she says in Mystery of Manners when, when she gets a letter from a college student asking, what, what do you expect me to, to make of your stories, basically? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she just she answers back to this person, I, I, you should just try to enjoy them. Mm-hmm. And she knows that that's not what the person wanted to hear at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because the person wanted an explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, the person wanted to understand what the stories were about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she, she uses that that example as a way of, of talking about a primary enjoyment that you have to have in order to understand. She mm-hmm. said, in some reading, you have to understand in order to enjoy. Yeah. But it's equally true to say that sometimes you have to enjoy in order to understand. In other words, if you come to something, and I think maybe this is what a lot of Christians struggle with, we feel like we need to analyze something and understand exactly what's going on before we know whether we're allowed to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Is this dangerous for me? Is this mm-hmm. uh, somehow wrong of me to be? If I find myself enjoying this, oh, if, if I've done something mm-hmm. wrong, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just intrigued by that idea, to yeah. like to allow, because it does it does imply a surrender. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to allow myself to to actually get into something and enjoy it and vibe it without really knowing what it is yet, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which, you know, you wouldn't want to do that with, uh, you know, a drink at a party that someone hands to you. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. You, so, um, yeah, anyway, I'm going to ramble mm-hmm. No, I think that's, that is really, really helpful. Um, I mean, C.S. Lewis in, in this, in this guy, um, he says that you actually, yeah, you don't know. I don't know if I'm going to find this, but um, I, have too, I have too many sticky notes to be able to find anything in here. Um, you don't actually know. You can't know if something's worth the surrender until you surrender. Um, it's a big risk. It's not as big of a risk as with a real live person, which is good. So it's kind of a practice. It's practice for doing that in real life and real relationships. That we, which we sometimes have to do. Um, that is something, like, I do want to say, because I, I know not all of you are super, um, like, into reading stories. You're not super practiced. Um, it's okay to stop. <laughs> like, you can, you can stop and be like, this is, this is going to be bad for me. Yeah. This, is, this is taking my imagination to places I don't want to go, or this is making me think about things that I don't want to think about. Even if it's just, I don't want to think about them right now. That's okay. There's no shame in that, in not finishing. Um, or it's also, it might also be like, this is just too hard. Like, this is above my level right now. Um, this just isn't... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hate this book that everyone says is good um, just because it's too hard. And so then stop. Wait till you're ready. <laughs> yeah, Marty. Uh, that's, that's helpful to me because I, I don't know where I learned got this from, but 
this sort of moral absolute that if I started a book, I have to finish it. Because I was saying, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. This is a waste of your time. I'm a really slow reader. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to finish a book that I'm that I'm not enjoying or I'm not following, it's a waste of time. And so, anyway, to, to just be able yeah. to the clear class and say, I'm not going to finish it. But I also wanted to um, say, just picking up on something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, know, about knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just in it's not just in books, but in in the arts in general. I'm just thinking of two examples of people. Um, John Sandry, who was Francis Schaeffer's um, son-in-law, married to Schaeffer's oldest daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, before he became a Christian, he was very much into philosophical romanticism, and he found that he could not, for a long time, he could not listen to certain music. He couldn't listen to Brahms, he couldn't listen to Wagner, because it just brought back the whole worldview that he'd been in, which he had turned away from, mm-hmm. and uh, was associated with, with it. And, and similarly, very different music, but a student who was here many, many years ago, and then was painting, when we were living up where um, Ben and Nikki, Nikki are now, the student stayed during a break time, he was painting the apartment, and our kids, who were through just the other side of the wall, were listening to the Rolling Stones. And he sheepishly asked if they could please, if they, if they could please listen to something else. Because so he turned up the radio on, oh, he turned on the baseball. Then he drowned out the Rolling Stones. He drowned out the Rolling Stones. And we wondered why he was so into what? baseball so much. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually wasn't into baseball. He was just desperate to drown out the sound of the Rolling Stones because mm-hmm. it brought back um, his whole former druggy life, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. he had turned away from and yeah. really didn't want all those memories coming back. And, and the arts, whether it's mm-hmm. literature, um, paintings, you know, visual arts or music, are so powerful mm-hmm. in our imaginations. And, and so if you, if, you, if you know that a particular writer or kind of story is um, is really going to make something attractive to you that you don't want to be attractive to you, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's I think one of one of the most amazing challenges and what makes I think you appreciate really good writing is authors who are able to make goodness attractive, mm-hmm. plausible and attractive, make you make virtue attractive mm-hmm. because it's so much easier to make to make evil and temptation attract mm-hmm. because we're falling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or even just um, depression and, and sad endings are yeah. way easier to write than happy ones that are convincing. Mm-hmm. That aren't mm-hmm. like Pollyanna-ish mm-hmm. that are, are sentimental or yeah. something else that are real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like along that, 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 that vein, like for, for, for me, like reading as a kid in a lot of ways was for the loneliness side of it was filling myself with something that I wasn't getting in reality. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, to what degree are stories and narrative addictive? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another word I was thinking. So, like escapism. Like, do you mm-hmm. think escapism is a part of reading and how should that be, like, considered? Yeah, that is that is a really good question. And that, that is something that... that um, that Jacobs talks about in this book and Lewis talks about as well. Um, Jacobs relies on Lewis a a lot. Um, 
He talks about. If I can find it. He talks about um, escapism in terms of. It's not so much like what we're escaping to, but what we're escaping from, um, that we need to evaluate. Um, he, he uses this image of like the conscious mind does not disdain sleep. Um, and the sleeper does not disdain being conscious. Like when you're dreaming and you're asleep, you're not like, wow, like I'm so dumb when I'm awake. Like you, that's just not like a conversation. Like both are fine. Sometimes a, a per, awake person does disdain con- uh, being asleep. But, um, so they're, so, so asking kind of the question, like not so much, yeah, what is it that I'm escaping to, but how am I doing that and, and what am I trying to escape from? Um, I'm not doing it justice. Really, really, this was at one point, this whole lecture was just going to be a book review of this book and just tell you all to read it because it's really good and it's not very long. Um, he talks also about not finishing. He says the first, this novel that he, the first novel that he didn't finish, he's a, he's a literature professor, like he reads for a living, um, was like some monster novel. He got to the 666th page, um, and was like, I'm going to stop. I can't do this. And it was like the most painful and most, cause he was like, I wasted 666 pages, um, but it was one of the most freeing things he ever did was to stop at that point and be like, I'm not going to finish this. Um, which I think was like, yeah, it, it can be a freeing thing to do. But it's like what I said earlier. I said, you know, for some of you, it might be a good exercise in freedom to read something that's pretty trashy. For others of you, that would be the worst thing for you to do. Um, and you know that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's going to vary. Sarah, are you wanting to say something? Well, it's jumping a little bit. That's but, fine. Um, I think this is a bit of an offhand comment that you made, but it just made me very happy to hear you say my 20 minutes of reading um, because I think one of my biggest obstacles to reading is feeling like I just don't have the time to do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And I think... In my mind, I think I have to have a large chunk of time mm-hmm. I have to sit down and fall into, yeah. you know, like it, it takes some time mm-hmm. to surrender to reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I'm curious if you have more thoughts on uh, reading in snippets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my other question is, like, have you had times in life where you have felt alienated from reading mm-hmm. and how have you found your way back into that mm-hmm. yeah good questions the um i think certain books will invite you to read them in snippets i can't just like give you a list of those right now but they're there they are there there are books that let you let you do that um they might not be War and Peace, which is fine. <laughs> um, it might be something that's little and more of a page turner, you know, and you kind of can pick up and know right away what, you know, where you left off, and it's not something that's being all crazy with timelines or something, you know, or five million characters you have to keep track of. Um, and so, so maybe just finding those things that let you read them in a in a smaller amount of time or kind of 
dip in and out. Um, there, there have been times, yes, when I've been alienated from reading. I, I studied literature, so that means when it was break, I was like, I can't read a thing. Um, and so some, sometimes I just wouldn't read anything, or um, I, I would read, like, some bestseller novel that was the hot thing that month year or whatever. Often, often though, I didn't. Um, I, I would just take a break and not read anything, any fiction. Um, I don't really remember. And I, I don't feel sad. I would feel sad <laughs> <laughs> that I wasn't reading anything. Um, but I was just too tired, too. And that's okay. You're just too tired. Yeah, Peter. <laughs> Well, what, what you said about the author or the reader stopping at a certain page and saying, I, I, I just can't go on. I encountered something like that. Um, I'd read Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose, and, the, and I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. I, I, ju- I just loved that story. And so I asked, I think for Christmas present, Foucault's Pendulum. And um, there is a punchline in it about... I would say 80% in, where he says to the reader, you've wasted your time reading up to this point. You may as well finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and it was. It was just this ponderous, awful, bloody encounter with his uh, with his brilliance, you might say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. but, but it... it and uh, I remember having a conversation with someone else about the same book, and he said, and he he nailed it also. He said, yes, about toward the end of the book, or you know, two hundred pages before the end, he said, you know, Echo says to the reader, you know, you've come this far, why, why not finish it? Mm-hmm. And it's the only book I've ever thrown away uh, <laughs> that uh, without the intent of. of, of giving it to, 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 to anyone else. But then I went back and I read some of his travel essays, and, uh, and, and, and they're wonderful. So uh, yeah. I, I just find that um, writers can be cheeky in mm-hmm. that way, too. That they, can, uh, that, that they can sort of lead you down these strange cul-de-sacs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, similarly, anyone who's read Villette, which mm-hmm. is sort of like mm-hmm. Jane Eyre grows yeah. up, uh, the ending is so confounding, you're wondering, does he live? Does he die? Does it, what, what's happened here? And, mm-hmm. uh, and so, uh, all, 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 all that's by, by way of saying that uh, the, 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 the dialogue that we can enter into with with a story can be surprising, infuriating, mm-hmm. uh, calming, uh, edifying, uh, infuriating, <laughs> so on and so forth. And yeah. they can all be good stories, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that element of surprise and possible uh, adversarial relationship mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. be. Uh, uh, in some ways indicative of a good piece of writing even if you don't like it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah. Michaela. I think a lot of reading, and maybe I just viewed this for quite a long time, of, of being hospitable to stories. Mm -hmm. like, um, you know, reading things that you, from a world that you would never take as your own. Mm -hmm. But being hospitable to them. Mm -hmm. Of like, maybe they know something I don't know. And stories of like inviting them in, and sometimes they'll be friends, and sometimes they'll never invite them over again. Mm -hmm. But yeah. having a posture of hospitality towards mm -hmm. a story that is not your own, mm -hmm. um, I have found that helpful in in reading things that are really either repulsive or mm -hmm. or so other of like mm -hmm. there's some. Like, it takes a lot to write a story. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot to get published. Mm -hmm. And so there's something here that I don't know, or or just being wel welcoming to a story mm -hmm. that's not your own. Um, I found that helpful in reading things that, one, make me uncomfortable, or um, make me think, ooh, I'm not so sure. But I also, like, after three chapters, if I'm like, eh, mm -hmm. I, then I don't at all feel... Mm -hmm. You know, indebted to connection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Just you need to leave. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's really a very good point. And I'm thinking about two books that I one of them I actually just went through in the trash as soon as I finished it. I should never stuck with it that long. And another one that um, yes, I still. I'm sorry that I ever picked up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some books that you just should say, yeah, it's okay. You can go. You can leave now. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's okay, like, like Peter was kind of saying, it's okay to, I mean, I, I have this with books ah, fairly regularly where I, I end up saying, like, you tricked me. You did not play fair. Yeah, that's right. You, I mean, sometimes it's just poor writing. They were... But they're folks. Yeah. Folks. There's something that they weren't... Yeah. Um, there's there's ways that, that there can be something that they, they think is clever, and it's actually a trick, and it's, like, not fair. And, um, and that could be, like, a plot thing or... Or a thing where they're like 80% of the way in are like, why are you still reading this, dummy? And it's like, wait, if you don't respect me as a reader, then why should I respect you as a writer? Like, they, they need to take you seriously, too. Um, and that's one of the ways you can kind of, you can tell if there's someone who, in good faith, is like, here's an offer of friendship. Or are they like, you know, do they have a knife behind their back? And they're like, here's an offer of friendship. Um, is is if, they, if, if the book talks down to you... Um, which which they sometimes do. Yeah, Ben. You just hinted at a second ago that maybe it was just not good writing. And, and um, you, know, you said also, you know, some of us sometimes may need to just read something trashy. You know, um, I know trashy could mean many different things. But, yeah. But um, uh, how much of what you're saying about the 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 worthwhileness, I guess, of, of reading literature is specific to good literature. <laughs> like, you know, like, the quality, like so much of what Lewis is talking about, we windows, and other, like, he's referring to writing that's a very good quality, that is, is well-crafted, 
Um, and I know this is a hornet's nest of just you know, how, how we judge how we judge quality mm-hmm. uh, in literature and taste and people's perspective is involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't really know where I'm going with this question, but um, it seems to matter. The, 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 the virtue of engaging with literature seems it seems to matter in proportion to how good the literature is. Uh, maybe that's yeah. just a naive way of saying <laughs> Yeah, no, I think most of this does apply to what would be called literary art. Yeah. Um, but that's also, like, a huge, huge category. And some things you, you, we... You know, especially if it's something new, we don't know if it's literary. Like if it's lit- if it's going to be a classic or not, we just doesn't it doesn't last long enough yet. Um, and it also doesn't just mean that like, you know, um, on this on that podcast I mentioned the literary life. They had a whole thing about why we should read old books, and they said because um, because like in every era of uh, when people have been writing, there's like lots of trashy stuff and then some great stuff. And the virtue of old stuff is is that generally the good stuff is what survives. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that like everything that was written in the 1800s was great. It's just like what we read, what we still get, what gets reprinted, that was the good stuff. Um, now, of course, with the internet and, and public domain stuff, like there's everything is is available. Especially, I mean, just if you're just going as far back as the Victorians, further back less but um they talked about like how we have like pieces of like greek plays and things that we don't have the rest of because they were bad like we can even tell from like these fragment that like yeah this is why this didn't survive like it just wasn't it wasn't as good as antigone or whatever (laughs) um and so, so we don't always know that with stuff that's coming out now because it just hasn't had a chance. Just because something's a bestseller doesn't necessarily mean it's good. One of the reasons I find it overwhelming is like, oh, what contemporary novel should I read? Like, yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I don't read a lot of them for that reason. Reading time is precious, and I read slowly also. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. I have to be recommended to read at least like ten people for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's fine, and that's a, that's a good way, a good way to filter through. But uh, I mean, yeah. But at the, on the other hand, like you might just kind of come across something. I mean, that's this was on the give and take shelf um, here, and I had watched the film of Howard's End, not the film of A Room with a View. So I read A Room with a View, and it was, I think, I would say it's the best novel I read last year. Um, it was so delightful, and I didn't know what I was getting at all. I had no idea I would get three men swimming in a salad. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's tricky, and that's that is where, like, again, you need to you do need to know yourself, um, but also to take take a little bit of a risk. Um, sleepy faces there's a lot more that we could say there's so much that thank you for coming um there's so much that 
didn't make it in. I would totally recommend The Pleasures of Reading in the Age of Distraction. It's highly readable. Um, if you want, if, you, if, if Lewis is kind of your thing, the way he writes, then this is really fascinating, his experiment in criticism. Um, he, he argues to judge books, the quality of, of, of a piece of literature by, not by, you know, whether it's, to, it's something in itself, but what kind of reading it invites. Um, yeah, and that's a whole other thing I could get into, but I'm not going to right now because it's late. Um, so there's some books that invite a certain kind of reading that's, that's less valuable than what things that are generally like classic literature invite. Yeah. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.